You all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we are, uh, 2 Corinthians, specifically chapter 11. Uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Um, but uh, Jonah, where are you at, man? I'm excited for you. I praise God for uh, his work in your life. And uh, my prayer is that uh, there would be many people who are baptized in the years to come, even based on your witness, Jonah, uh, that, that you can tell them about Christ, uh, your classmates, uh, maybe someday kids, other people in our church. Uh, that would be a glorious, glorious thing. Well, it is summer, and for me, one of the things I like most about summer is getting to watch baseball. Uh, I'm a big baseball fan. I really enjoy baseball. I have grown to even more so as I am older, not because I'm good at baseball, but I like watching other people who are good at baseball. Uh, and baseball is... Uh, often referred to as America's pastime. You've probably heard that term before. We're even probably the least sports-minded people in this room are probably at least familiar with the basics of baseball, uh, how you play the game, kind of what the ultimate point of it is, scoring runs, stuff like that. Uh, and if you're familiar with baseball or conversation around it, you probably know that there's a whole bunch of people in today's world who think that baseball needs to adapt, that baseball needs to modernize itself. Some of you are nodding along with that. Uh, it's like, yes, it does need to get uh, modified and adapted. Uh, and there's one minor league team that has tried to get a, a unique corner on this market of trying to adapt the game of baseball. And this is a real team. You can look it up, not now. Look it up later. Uh, they are called the Savannah Bananas. I kid you not. That is the name of their team. They're from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, they, they are a minor league baseball team. And later, you can look up more about this game that they have created. Uh, the, the origin of the game, this modified version of baseball that they've created, uh, you can watch even a little video. The owner of that team, uh, he dons this bright yellow suit in the spirit of the bananas and a yellow hat. Uh, and he has this short video where he's talking about traditional baseball game and says, quote, it's a little bit too long a little bit too slow, and a little bit too boring for too many fans, so we had to change it. Now that's what he said. And so they came up with a game, a modified version of baseball that they literally call Banana Ball. Uh, they, they call it Banana Ball, and you can look up more later, but a couple basic rules of Banana Ball, so you can kind of get a feel of the silliness of it, the absurdity of it, but maybe the funness of it also, uh, is that all games can only take two hours max. If it goes over that, the game is over, and whoever is in the lead wins. Uh, they play in such a way that every inning counts. If you know what an inning is, just whoever scores the most runs in that inning gets a point, and you have to get five points, and then the game is over. So it doesn't even have to go nine innings. Uh, they do not have walks in the game. They have something instead called sprints. Uh, when ball four crosses the plate, you can take off, and there's certain things that have to happen uh, for you to be out. And then my favorite rule amongst it, as I imagine the game, is this, is that when you hit a foul ball that goes into the stands, if a fan catches it, you are out. Uh, that, that's a rule to keep the game going on. So this is a feel of what banana ball is like. It's an adapted version of baseball. And it is not totally caught on yet, okay? Uh, but you could imagine... You could imagine it catching on. If you watch it, you'll see what I'm saying. You can imagine it catching on, becoming more popular. And I want you to imagine for a second that it does. Imagine that it starts to gain popularity in Georgia, uh, where they're based... 
Uh, that fans start flocking instead of going to Atlanta Braves games like the major league team. They start going, driving to Savannah to go watch uh, this kind of sideshow thing of the Savannah Bananas uh, playing banana ball. And then imagine that those players on that team that with their yellow jerseys and all uh, start getting kind of puffed up, kind of too big for their britches type of mentality and think, you know, like we actually have the better game, and we're actually even better players. And they start bragging about it, start uh, putting on airs of their superiority even over the Atlanta Braves. And imagine then in this hypothetical that the Atlanta Braves, the real professional team, uh, some of the best players in the world, they get wind of this and their fans are leaving to go there. And they agree once to go play banana ball in Savannah. Uh, they, they agree, you know what, this is getting out of hand. Like we really need to prove who is the better players, who, who has the best skill. And so they drive and go to Savannah to, to stoop to the foolishness of playing this game of banana ball. But also imagine then before the game, as the fans are about to watch, imagine that the captain of the Atlanta Braves gets up and he wants to clarify a few things before they play this silly game. Uh, to, to clarify, you know what, before we even play this, we all know who the better baseball players are. We all know what true baseball is. We're going to stoop to play this game, and we'll beat you even at that game, uh, this game of banana ball. But let it be clear, like, there is no question we are the better players. And sort of talking a little bit of friendly smack uh, to this other team before they play this game. If you could imagine that particular thing, that captain standing up and before all these fans clarifying your game, your modified game is not the real game. Like, we'll beat you at it. But let it be clear, like, we, this is not even real baseball. We play real baseball, and you don't. If you can imagine that captain saying that, then you're getting close to what the feel in church world is like of 2 Corinthians 11. And this is what I mean. We're going to go through the first half of 2 Corinthians 11 this morning, verses 1 to 15. But what you're going to see when we come back to this text next time is in verse 16 and following, the second half of 2 Corinthians, whose boasts are more impressive of their ministry and what they're like, I will play your foolish game. Like, I'll stoop to that. That's what's going to happen in 16 and following. But in 1 to 15, it's like before that game starts, before he enters into this foolishness of boasting and comparing, he wants to make a couple things clear about whose ministry really is true. And whose ministry really is right. And showing some of the differences between their two ways of operating. The rules that they're playing by in true gospel ministry that Paul does. And then this modified version that these teachers in Corinth have started to do. And so verses 1 to 15 that I'm about to read are kind of like this pre-game speech that Paul gives to all the fans who are, are looking on. Who have known what his ministry, his original work was like. And then have seen this modified foolish version that false teachers have come and started playing out in Corinth as well. So listen along with me and then we'll walk back through and I trust that this will make sense and it will benefit us as we go through it for us even today. So follow along with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 1 to 15. Paul speaking to this church under the inspiration of the Spirit writes this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, 
You put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. I want to show you how Paul is highlighting before he goes into this pseudo game of boasting and who can boast more, uh, that foolish game he's going to enter into in these verses ahead. I want to go back through this kind of pre-game clarifying talk that he gives to, to clarify why he's so concerned that these Corinthians have been starting to listen to these false teachers, this modified version of ministry that they've created. And I want to show you how he highlights some of the differences between those, between his ministry and theirs. And I think we'll see that those are still important for us today to be able to identify what's true gospel ministry that we should follow after and what might be some pseudo uh, false form of gospel ministry that we need to be careful of. And so you see in the first four verses of what we read this morning, you see why Paul is so concerned for this church. Okay, he had started this church years before. Humanly speaking, he's the one God had used to start this church, to go there, tell them about Jesus, see people converted, see people be baptized, see people start to worship and grow together. But now Paul, here in these verses, he says in verse 2, he talks about himself as like the spiritual father of them, doesn't he? He talks about them as a church collectively as if they're this, this daughter of his that he has betrothed, that's kind of like engagement, that he's betrothed to Jesus, that he's entrusted to, to be one with Jesus, that, that he's brought them to Jesus to become one with him. But he's jealous for them because he is concerned that even though they've been betrothed to Jesus, that they're going to be unfaithful to Jesus that they're going to abandon Jesus, that they're going to walk away from him and be faithful to someone else, that they're going to listen to someone else instead of to Christ, right? He's concerned in verse 3 that they're going to be tempted to infidelity, that they're going to be swayed, they're going to be led astray, he says, from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And in large part, it's going to be because of these teachers who've crept in at Corinth, who are leading them that way, who are tempting them to move away from the Jesus that Paul taught them to follow. And Paul thinks, if I'm reading this correctly, Paul is concerned that they might not even totally realize that's happening. That they're being deceived. 
That it's not like their eyes wide open walking away from Jesus, but that they're being tricked into it. That they're being lured into it by this kind of false version of gospel ministry that these teachers are doing in Corinth. And Paul is trying to wake them up and say, you are about to become unfaithful to Christ if you continue to listen to these people. If you continue to follow after them, you're going to be unfaithful to him. And you see in verse 4 then, the difference between Paul's ministry and the ministry of these teachers that have come into Corinth is more than just, hey, we have some differences of approach. We have some differences of priorities of, you know what, you emphasize this, I emphasize that. Paul is, saying, is implying in verse 4 that as these teachers are coming in that they're proclaiming another Jesus altogether. That they are giving them a different spirit altogether. That they are giving them a different gospel, a different message to believe altogether. It's not just some slightly different version that's still good. He's saying they are giving you totally different things. It may feel like it's still the same Jesus, feel like it's still the same gospel, feel like it's still the same Holy Spirit, but I am telling you it is different and you need to stop listening to these brothers who are teaching you. They are leading you astray. Paul knows that they are in grave danger if they continue listening to these false teachers. And so in verse 5, he kind of sarcastically calls those teachers super apostles, right? We've used that term a few times as we've gone through 2 Corinthians. This is where we get it from. That, that, I don't think they called themselves super apostles. I kind of doubt they were like flexing like they have a big S on their chest, like we're super apostles. But Paul is giving them this label kind of sarcastically and mockingly saying they think that they are better than us. They think that they're superior to me even in how they minister, but not better than me. Let's be clear before we ever enter into this game of boasting, who has the superior ministry? And he says, we know this. We've demonstrated this to you. You know it. They know it. Let's not pretend as if it's untrue. And so they're in, in grave danger. And Paul sarcastically calls them super apostles. And then I'm going to share with you three principles I think you see in, in verse 6 and following that, that illustrate the difference between the ministry of these super apostles who've come in with kind of this varied form of gospel ministry and then Paul's true gospel ministry, some distinctions between the two. The first one I want you to point is just from one verse, from verse 6. And the point, if you're a note taker, it's not going to be on the screen today, but if you're a note taker, you could, could write this down and tuck this away. The difference between them is that eloquence does not equal truthfulness. Eloquence does not equal truthfulness. Those are two different things. Paul in verse 6 says this. He, it's so funny, like even after verse 5, he just said, I'm not inferior to these guys in any way. And then verse 6, very next sentence, it's like he turns around and is like, well, like maybe. Like he says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. And so it's like when he's talking about public speaking, the, the skills that he has or doesn't have in public speaking, it's like Paul is acknowledging, I'm not the best public speaker. Like I, I don't have all the skills. I don't have all the abilities that maybe even these super apostles have who could have this impressive speaking ability and rhetoric. He, he's saying, I may be unskilled in speaking, but he still would say what he said in verse 5, I am not inferior to them. My ministry is not inferior to them because Paul knew that eloquence does not matter if it's not eloquently speaking truth, Right? He knew that eloquence alone, if you, you can eloquently teach people garbage. Like you can eloquently, effectively, winsomely teach people things that will lead them to hell. 
can't you? And Paul knows it. And he, he's saying, who cares whose speaking ability is better? In, in their ancient world, and this is still true today, we put so much stock in eloquence, like in rhetoric, and a person's ability to be funny, to be engaging, to be insightful, to be uh, just, just have this personality that's engaging and dynamic. We put so much stock in that, and they used to in the ancient world still, even back then, we're the same today, put so much stock in eloquence, public speaking skill. Even back in verse 10 of the previous chapter, if you look back at that, those false teachers in Corinth had been almost like making fun of the Apostle Paul. They had said that, that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. It's like those teachers in Corinth are like, do you remember how bad of a speaker he is? Like, do you like, put us in the, the scale? Like, we are much better speakers, obviously, than what Paul is. And Paul says, who cares? Who cares? Like, I, I don't care. He says, what I am superior in, verse 6, he says, what I am superior in, unquestionably, is knowledge. He says, you may speak better than me, but I know more than you. And he's not talking about intellect like he's saying, I'm like the smartest person alive. He is saying, I know the truth. Like I, Jesus told me the truth. Like he imparted to me, I am superior to you in knowledge in that way. Like I know what Jesus has told me. I know what he has commanded me to tell people. And I have the upper hand when it comes to the knowledge of truth. You may have the upper hand in speaking skill. I have the upper hand in the knowledge of truth. And he has always owned this. Like if you look back in 1 Corinthians, which he wrote a few years before this, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, he said about himself, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul was not even trying to pretend like he was eloquent. What, what he was proclaiming was the cross of Jesus. What he was proclaiming was the good news that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our resurrection. Uh, that, that, that that is what he is preaching. And he does not care how eloquent others are or how eloquent or uneloquent he is. What matters in the mind of Paul, what defines true gospel ministry, is not eloquence but truth. And Paul wants them, the, these Corinthians to be clear about that. That truthfulness always outweighs eloquence. There are gifted people who smoothly teach heresy. I have heard it done. Like you have probably heard it done. I, I remember clear as day an experience when I was in seminary. I was still learning to be discerning. I was not for long in the maturity of thought. And there was a guy, he's still a pastor. I, don't, I would never even call him a pastor. But a man by the name of Rob Bell who had some very popular books when I was in college and even in seminary. And I went, while I lived in Louisville, I went to this uh, theater in Louisville. He was doing like this speaking tour. And I, I was, quite, this was before some of his just craziness came out in the public of what he believed spiritually. He still seemed kind of orthodox. Uh, I remember sitting, he talked for probably two and a half hours straight. And it was one of the most fascinating talks I had ever heard. Like I remember sitting and just being like, whoa. Like, this guy 
is fascinating, he's insightful, he's funny, he's engaging, and he's talking about the Bible. Like, he's talking about Jesus. He, and I remember just being so, like, taken for a bit with this guy, and he was building up to the end of his talk, where he'd been talking about human history throughout the Bible and all these sacrifices that have been made and all these sacrifices that have been made and what he thought they meant and why God had them. And they finally came to talk about Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross. I was like, yes, this is going to be great. Like he's going to say how Christ was offered as a sacrifice for us, how, how he had to die in our place so that we might be forgiven. And what he said was something to this effect. To hundreds and hundreds of people who are on the edge of their seat listening to this guy and just soaking in everything that he said, he basically said to them, the reason Jesus died on the cross was not to pay for your sins, but to show that he was willing to endure mistreatment from fellow human beings. That's how he described the cross. And I remember saying, what? Like the, and I, I remember standing up at the end of it and after he gave this talk and there's all these people around me just talking about, like, that was so great. Like that was awesome. Like that, that was so wonderful. Like can you believe how good of a speaker that guy is? And I just remember being heartbroken like, no, he is not. Like he is eloquent. He is interesting. He is funny. But he just told people stuff that if they believe that and take him as word, they are going to hell. And that will not save them. And there are tons of people like this. We can be like this sometimes if we're not careful. We just think of eloquence as what matters most in gospel ministry. We think of how wonderful of a speaker someone is, how smooth their talk is. But we need to remember, according to Paul, how important knowledge is, how important truthfulness is as a litmus test of true gospel ministry. Truthfulness always should outweigh eloquence. And eloquence, I would say this, eloquence is not inherently bad, right? Like, if someone is a gifted speaker, teacher, it doesn't mean we need to, like, never listen to them. Like, eloquence isn't inherently bad, but it can be dangerous, like if someone possesses a gift of eloquence and rhetorical skill, what happens with us as human beings is that we start to let our guard down and we just start to listen to the things they say and just, man, this is so smooth. Like this is good. Like this is, this is really interesting. And we just let barriers down and we let things get into our minds and hearts that may taste sweet but that are poison. Like there, I do not know much about poison, uh, but I looked up a little bit of how if people are trying to poison people, how they do it. And the, one of the most, God, that sounds demented. Don't, don't hear me say it. You don't need to be nervous. Uh, okay. Uh, but a way people try to poison people, a common thing people use, this may sound very weird, is antifreeze. And the reason they do it is because of the main ingredient, I don't even know how to say this, is ethylene glycol, is it tastes sweet. And so like you can put it in something and nobody notices it. It actually maybe even tastes good and it's going to kill them. And like sometimes speech is like that. Sometimes that like dances around Jesus and it, it sounds smooth, but it undermines the truth of the gospel and the cross can be like that antifreeze that tastes good going down, but that will lead to death. And Paul is saying, you all Corinthian false teachers, you may have smooth talk, but I have true talk about Christ. And we need to be discerning of that as we listen to people. Are they speaking the truth? That is a marker of true gospel ministry, not mere eloquence. 
Second thing you see, this is a longer section, verse 7 through 11. The differences between true gospel ministry of Paul and kind of this pseudo version of these teachers who've come in at Corinth, I, I would summarize this way, and it has to do with money and compensation, uh, is this, is that compensation doesn't equal legitimacy. Compensation doesn't equal legitimacy. So if eloquence doesn't equal truthfulness, compensation doesn't equal legitimacy. What's going on in verses 7 through 11 is Paul is telling them, the church knows this, but he's reminding them in writing that he has never taken money from them, like received any sort of payment from them as the church at Corinth. And he's saying he will not do that. He's committed to not taking money from them as a church family. Now you see in verse 7, he, he says that I preached God's gospel to you, quote, free of charge. That's going to be something that's different from these teachers who've come in at Corinth. He says, I preach it to you free of charge. And he says even in verses 8 through 9, like when he needed help, when he needed support, he, we know from 1 Corinthians he actually worked while he was in Corinth. He did things with his hands to try to, to earn money and to support himself. But he says when he, in verse 8 and 9 here, when he needed help, when he needed subsidizing of money, he actually received it not from the churches in Corinth, but he sought it out from elsewhere from these other churches in Macedonia, who, note, side note, we saw a couple chapters ago, were fairly poor. Uh, but Paul had still taken gifts from them to support his ministry there in Corinth. And this would have been very, very unusual in Paul's day uh, for a speaker, someone who especially was a traveling speaker who would go to a city and go to another city like Paul was doing. It would have been very unusual for them not to be supported by the people they were teaching. That was just a common thing that as there would be these traveling teachers uh, as a sign of like the, the weightiness and significance of that person who is that teacher, uh, these people who are listening to them would pool funds and give them to them as a gift, not necessarily as a paycheck of sorts, but as a gift to them to show their appreciation, their honor, their valuing of that person and their speech. And so Paul was an anomaly here. He's saying, reminding this church, I have never taken funds from you. I know that's strange, but I've never taken funds from you, and I'm committed to not doing that. And it was a choice that he had made. He, we don't have time to get into this, but if you look back in 1 Corinthians 9, check that out sometime, Paul makes it very clear that, that he didn't feel like it was morally wrong to take money. He even kind of implies the opposite, that, that Jesus, he says, even taught that a, a laborer deserves his wages, that those who like, serve with the gospel can be compensated. He, he says that can be fine, that can be good, but he willfully chooses to not receive money from the Corinthian church. And he did it, we can tell at least here, verse 7, part of why he did that. He says, He's asking a rhetorical question. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? So he's saying there was this voluntary refusal to take money to, to humble himself so that these brothers and sisters could be exalted, so that they could receive the gospel. And I think he probably had in mind to, to not have any sort of awkwardness that can arise if there's a group of people giving money to a person and then they're the one responsible for teaching them. There can be an awkward tension that happens where the teacher feels obligated to tell them what they want to hear right? Like, that, that, well, they're paying my paycheck. I need to tell them what they, need, they want to hear. Uh, Paul, I think, was wanting to avoid any illusion of that and say, I am just going to teach to you what is true because it's true. Not because you're generous to me, but because it's true and you need to hear it. Paul was saying, I, I don't receive money from you. But what 
also seems like it's happening in Corinth. As Paul has made this choice to forego receiving money from them, it seems like these teachers in Corinth are kind of planting seeds among the church. Like, what's that show us about Paul? Like, if he, if he doesn't really receive money for this, like every other teacher we know in the world receives money for their teaching. Uh, it shows when they, even the more money they get, it, it show, we all know that means they're a better speaker and they're more significant, they're more important. This Paul's not taking anything from us. Like what does that say about how valuable what he teaches us is? Like he knows what he's worth, basically. Uh, that, that he's not worth anything. And it seems like they're planting seeds of doubt in this church because those teachers are certainly willing, it seems like, to receive money from the church. Paul's saying this is a big difference between me and them. I don't receive money, they do. And he's saying, I wanted to model self-sacrifice to you. I'm going to continue to model self-sacrifice to you. And he doesn't want them to believe the, these, these deceitful suggestions that seem to be coming from the Corinthians. Like if you look at verse, uh, verse 7, or excuse me, verse 11, the end of that paragraph, because he's saying, I'm going to continue to do this. And he says, uh, Why? Because I don't love you? It seems like that was this question that was also in their minds. Like, does Paul really love us? Like, we're trying to give him this gift. We're trying to, like, help fund him and thank him for what he's taught us. But he's not receiving it from us. Does he really even love us? That seems to be, like, this question that the false teachers are putting in their minds there at Corinth. Like, does he really love us as a church if he's not willing to receive our gifts? You've probably had that happen before sometime, right? Or you could at least imagine. Like if you're seeking to offer a gift to someone and they don't take it, there can be some sort of offense there, right? Where you wonder, what's going on between us? Like are we, are we okay? Like do you love us? And like you know we love you. Uh, and those teachers there in Corinth seem to be capitalizing on that thinking. Maybe Paul doesn't even really love us. Not only is he maybe not legitimate, as a teacher, but maybe he doesn't even love us. And Paul is trying to assure them, you know I do. And he even says at the end of verse 11, God knows I do. That's what he's most concerned about is God's estimation of him. God knows that I love you. God knows why I am foregoing money. And it's not because I'm not, my teaching isn't worth anything. And it's not because I don't love you. There's other reasons. And there was just baked into this world and into this church, there was this assumption that compensation equals legitimacy. That, that the more that you're compensated, the more you're given monetarily even for your teaching, the more credibility that gives you, the more that makes you legitimate. And Paul will not have any of that. He's saying that is a changing of the rules. The legitimacy of teaching is not in any way tied to how much per, a person receives for it. Or as thanks for it. The legitimacy of a person's ministry is based on how it corresponds to truth. Does it actually match what Jesus has said? That is what you look at to see if a teacher is legitimate. Not what is their paycheck like? Not what is their salary? Not what sort of offering did they rake in when they go and do a speaking engagement? That is not what you look at to see if somebody's ministry is legitimate. You see if their message is true. You see, if it corresponds to the message that Christ has entrusted to his people. And I praise God that within our church, and even it's been wonderful this summer to have many of our field workers home uh, who are about to go back home. There are many people on staff in our church and who have been sent out from our church who are funded by us, including the person on this stage. Okay? Like we, we have this blessing to be able to minister with the support of God's people. But I, I promise you, as one who receives that, do not think my ministry is legitimate because you pay me. 
Do not think that these brothers and sisters who go out to the, foreign, reach the far corners of the world, that their ministry is legitimate because we're sending them money each month. That does not legitimize us. Like what legitimizes us is if we are preaching the truth, if we are teaching the truth of what God has given to us in the gospel of Christ. That is what gives us legitimacy not a paycheck. There are so many in this room who are t- better teachers than me, uh, who are, are teaching in our Sunday morning classes, who are teaching in our kids' classes right now, who are teaching what is true for nothing monetarily. And they are as legitimate as me, right? Because they are teaching the truth. May we never think that if a person starts to have a higher salary, if they start to receive more money as gifts for their teaching, that that makes them more legitimate. What makes them legitimate is if they are preaching the truth. There's a a book, just the title alone is worth the price of it, that John Piper wrote. Uh, The title of it that he was addressing pastors, he wrote this. He said, it was called, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Like, you can just chew on that for a little bit. That is an important thing for anyone who is in formal ministry where they do start to receive compensation to remember, I am not a professional earning a salary for what I do. Like, if we give gifts to people, it's to support them, not to to pay them like a paycheck. It is to free them up from marketplace work. It's not to be a paycheck for the work that is performed. We are not professionals. Paul was not a professional. And these false teachers at Corinth may have thought that they were in some sort, that the, the money they received was making them legitimate, but it does not. The third difference, the last difference that Paul, I think, highlights here between his ministry and theirs you see in verses uh, 13 through 15. Verse 12, he had said, hey, I'm going to continue to not receive money from you. He even says, I'm going to continue to do that to undermine the claim of these people, these teachers who like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as we do. So that was the transitionary verse there in verse 12. He's saying, uh, these guys claim that they're on the same footing as us, that they're playing the same game as us. They're playing banana ball. We're playing real baseball. Like, they are not playing the real game. They are not doing the real work. And let's not be under any illusion that they are. And in verses then 13 through 15, as he wraps up this section, this pregame speech before he gets into this foolish game of boasting, uh, the last thing I would summarize in verses 13 through 15 would be this. And I was struggling with how to say this, but I would say it this way, that appearance doesn't equal reality. Appearance doesn't equal reality reality. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, one of my English teachers uh, said, I remember her saying that for those of us who were going to go to college, if we were ever sitting in an English class, like a literature class, and we were talking about a work of fiction or a play or something, and we kind of dozed off in class, and then the teacher like calls on you and says, hey, what, what did you think was an important theme from this book or from this play? She said, Always say three words, appearance versus reality. Uh, and I have tucked that away. She said it will sound profound. Like that's a theme of every story is, man, how do things appear and what is reality? What's really going on? And so as Paul gets here, or if you've zoned out, tune back in the appearance versus reality theme you see even in this text, right? Because in 13 through 15, Paul is making this distinction between what things appear like in a person's ministry and what is really true in a person's ministry. And sometimes those are the same. Oftentimes they're not. And to not be fooled by what just appears to be true, but look for what is actually true about this person, what is actually true about their ministry. 
So in verses 13 through 15, he's making very clear before he enters into this game, these guys are duped. They are duping you. Like they are appearing godly. They are appearing like they're serving Christ. They want you to think that they are not. He says they are a servant of Satan. Right? Like he does not mince words here. As he gets ready to do this game of boasting, verse 13, he says, about verse 13, he says, such men are false apostles. Not like a different kind of apostle. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they like to pretend that they are. They like to act like their message is legitimate, that their ministry is legitimate. But he is saying they are only appearing so because then he starts to use this language again and again of disguise, right? Verse 14, he says, No wonder, because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants, he's saying these teachers are servants of Satan. He's saying it's no surprise that they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And we've talked about this before earlier in the letter, but it's so important for us to remember and latch on to is this. The fact that somebody teaches about Jesus, that they even have like a respect for Jesus, the fact that they are trying to live a godly life, the fact that they are trying to genuinely serve people and care for people, does not mean in and of itself that they are preaching the truth. Like there are people who pretend, and they might not even totally realize their deception, but they pretend that they love the Jesus of the scriptures. They pretend that they believe the gospel of the scriptures, but they are not. They are trying to do good things. They're trying to benefit people. They they are coming as an angel of light, as a messenger of light to benefit the people that they are serving. But there are many who that is just a disguise. That that they, they become more palatable to the people they're coming to. Wolves don't come into churches with wolves' clothes on, Right? They come with sheep's clothes on. They, 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 they try to look like someone who really loves Christ, but inwardly they're wolves. Like that they, they, if they are not teaching the good news of Christ as presented to us in the scriptures, they are not for our good. And at first blush, they might seem like they're a healthy teacher to listen to. But Paul says to listen to what they truly say. Are, is what they're saying, are they, do they have the knowledge, back to verse 6, that is actually true? There's this appearance of godliness, this appearance of humility in these teachers at Corinth that I think made the, the Christians there want to listen to them. I think these people seem like good people. Like they're talking about the Bible. They want good for us. They're kind to us. They're not like trying to manipulate us. They, they, they have smiles on their faces maybe. Like they, they look like they're trying to care for us. And Paul says of them, even though they appeared as angels of light, he says they are servants of Satan. It's so important for us because I, I would encourage us to just keep this in our minds to not, when we have teachers who are trying to teach us, whether it's in a formal capacity or it's a coworker or a relative or a friend, when we have people who are trying to teach us about Christ, it's to not just look at the externals of their life, like what initially seems to be true about this person. And think, okay, if that's true, then I can just listen to everything that they say. There are tons of people who are religious who are spiritual, who are kind, who are hard workers at their jobs, who are good neighbors, who are selfless, 
who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may believe some form of it. They may have some respect for Jesus, but they don't believe the gospel that he was crucified for our sins. That he was raised for us to be joined in resurrection with him. That our forgiveness of sin only comes through him and him alone. And if they are religious and kind and spiritual and friendly to you and they don't believe that, you should not listen to them. Like you should remember that this could be a disguise. This could be hiding behind it someone who truly does not believe the gospel of Christ. Trustworthiness of a person is not determined by outward appearances. Right? The trustworthiness of a person isn't determined by outward appearances. I, as an illustration, I thought about whether to share this or not. But I think some of you may, I actually know one of you at least, because we talked about it briefly yesterday, have been receiving some of these. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses recently, I've noticed, have been sending these handwritten little letters in the mail. I've received a couple of them. I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor or something, but Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they have these, like, ours was, it seemed like, taken at face value of some nice old lady who's a Jehovah's Witness saying, like, hey, I don't even know how they have our name or our address, but saying, hey, like, Goodwin family, and they must have taken a long time, right, this, like, hope you are doing well, and, like, all this, like, real friendly stuff, like, saying, we hope that the, the Lord blesses you and that, that you're doing well. Uh, they, they're saying all these kind of things. If you ever want to talk about Jesus, like, we would be glad to talk to you about Jesus. It, it, it's this guys, like, on first blush, man, they, they seem like awesome people. Like, she seems like it would be awesome to talk to her. Like, she doesn't even know me, and she's writing me a letter. I do not reply to those things. I don't engage in conversation because what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, they are, they are nice people, most of them. Like if you talk to them, they're nice people. They have some respect for Jesus, some respect for God. They do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe the claims that he made even about himself. They don't believe the, the truth about what happened actually on the cross as atonement for our sin. They don't believe in the resurrection the same way that we do. They have hints of the gospel, but it's a distorted gospel that cannot save. And they may tell it to you with a smile on their face. They will tell it to you with a smile on their face and kindness in their hearts. But they are telling you false truths. And we need to be discerning enough to know that outward appearance, friendliness, doesn't equal trustworthiness. People, I would say this way, people can lead you to hell with a smile on their face. And they might not even realize they're taking you there. They may think they're doing good. I think some of these teachers in Corinth thought they were doing good. They thought they were just serving people. They thought that they were, were doing the right thing. But even as they intended good, Paul says they are doing harm. And so we, it's not that we should be so skeptical of every person that we make nothing of character, that we make nothing of external appearances, right? Character is important. How we treat people, how we handle ourselves is important. But care, I would say this way, character should confirm a minister's credibility, not establish it. Like characters should confirm their credibility, not establish it. Like you don't look at a person just say, man, they seem like wonderful. Let me listen to everything they say. You hear what they say, and then you look at their life and say, does this correspond and show that they take things at face value? So 
Next time we come to this text, we're actually next Sunday's July 4th, so we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at Isaiah 40, a fascinating text next Sunday about the nations. It's our Nations Independence Day, but we're going to see how God views the nations in general, among whom we are one next Sunday. But when we come back to this text two Sundays from now, verse 16, we'll see Paul enter into this like banana ball type of game, right? Where he's going to put his boasting up against their boasting and say, let's see who actually wins here. But he knows it's a foolish game and you're gonna see him make all these caveats like I really don't want to play this game like it feels beneath me but I'm gonna play it uh, but in this pregame speech of sorts that we saw today you can see that Paul knows that the outcome's already determined like he knows that his ministry is superior to theirs it's not even a question in his mind he ends this text by saying of those false teachers, their end will correspond to their deeds. It's not a question in his mind of whose ministry is legitimate or not. It's not an open question. And Paul's mind, he knows. And in keeping with the metaphor of baseball, I, I want to end by saying this. Baseball can change, right? That may like make some of us cringe. Like, oh, baseball can never change. Baseball is a man-made thing, right? It's been around a long time. In theory, it could be improved. Whether banana ball is improving it, open question, okay? Uh, but baseball can change. The rules of baseball could change, could theoretically be improved. It's a man-made game. The rules of gospel ministry cannot be improved and will never be improved. And people may try to change them and try to change the grid and the scorecard of what makes a minister effective, what, what establishes and verifies true gospel ministry. But Paul knew the rules of gospel ministry will never change. They can never be improved upon because, in keeping with the baseball metaphor, there's one person on the field whose opinion really matters, right? And it's not the players, and it's not the crowd. It's the umpire, Right? Like, he's the one who, is, who knows the game that's about to be played. Like, he knows what the rules are. He knows what the outcome is. And he's the one who determines what is okay and what is not. And in this metaphor of ministry, that person is Jesus Christ. Uh, that we can try to come up with our own ideas of what effective ministry is. Jesus is the determiner of what effective and true ministry is, right? He's the one who lived it out first. He's the one who humbled himself that we could be exalted. He's the one who died upon the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification so that someday we could be raised. Someday we could rule with him on a new earth. Like He is the one who determines what is true. He is the one who determines what is significant. He is the one who determines what is trustworthy and who is trustworthy. And we don't have to be nervous of how he's going to call the game. Right? Like he has secured our forgiveness. It's not an open question if we're united with him. He has died for our sins and he has been raised for us. And we don't have to wonder about how he wants us to live. He has told us in his word. So rather than trying to create our own game and create our own rules, we come back to him and say, how do you want us to play? We're going to play that way. Right? I'm going to invite us to pray. I want to invite you to stand as well. We're going to sing one more song.